And so Matthew 1, 18, 25 is where we're going to be. You can turn there if you'd like to. Uh, if you caught on already, that's not Romans. And so uh, we're going to be taking a little break from Romans as we get, get into this Advent season because my hope is that we're going to be able to enter into this time of Advent, Advent as it's, as it's uh, intended to go. And so if you're not familiar with what Advent season is, this is a very uh, intentional season of longing and expectation. Uh, the word itself literally means uh, the arrival of a notable person or thing. And that's what we are doing in this Advent season. We are remembering the arrival of Jesus Christ, everything that his life, death, and resurrection has accomplished on our behalf. And then we're looking forward with expectation and with longing as we remember that his work still isn't finished and that he's promised to come again, as we read about in Revelation, to make all things brand new, to establish his kingdom in totality and to bring that in. And this is a day that Revelation talks about when there's going to be no more weeping, no more crying, no more tears, no more sin, no more pain. The old things will have passed away and behold, new things will have come in. And so there's a lot of tension in this Advent season because on the one hand, we look back and we remember what he brought in with Jesus Christ and all the victory and all the joy and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, all the access we have to the Father through Christ in his first arrival. And then there's also this sense of longing and expectation as we realize, hey, things are not as they should be. Things are not as they will be. And we long for his return and for him to come in to do the things which he's always promised to do. And so my hope in the next few weeks as we get into some very traditional stories around the Christmas story and the Christmas narrative is that you and I would be able to enter into this Advent season with appropriate longing and with appropriate hope as we reflect on some of these different stories. And so that's where we're going to be today, Matthew 1, 8. 18 to 25. We're going to be looking at Joseph's story right here. Um, the question that I want to look at today is how do you and I wait well when I think it's a given that, that we're not exactly wired to wait well, right? How do we wait well when we're not really wired to be people that wait very well? I don't know if you've caught on to this. Maybe you have a spouse or a friend or a kid or something like that that uh, you've got to hide the presents from them right? They can't wait to the 25th and like you don't trust them. And so you've like hidden it in the attic, like underneath all the pink insulation and stuff. Uh, anybody else do that? Um, okay, maybe, maybe not. But uh, anyway, but, uh, but we know this is like waiting is not a thing that's very easy to do. Um, this past week, a friend of mine sent me this hilarious video. How many of you guys are familiar with the marshmallow experiment that, that takes place with little kids? You've seen some videos about that. You've heard us talk about it in the past, but pretty funny experiment. You've seen the, the whole concept, right? They, they, they put a kid in a room. They put a, a giant marshmallow in front of his face or her face and says, okay, if you can wait for a few minutes, I'm going to leave the room. And if you wait, if, if you can wait and not eat this, I'll come back and I'll give you two or I'll give you a bigger prize in the end, something like that. And it's hilarious because these kids are freaking out. They're sweating. They're kind of rocking back and forth to try to help them wait well. Um, evidently, there's some people that start doing this with their dogs. Uh, it cracked me up and you got to see this video. I think it kind of plays into what we're about to talk about. But Caitlin, if you'll go ahead and roll that. a little liar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't that right? Isn't that awesome? 
Uh, I love how he kind of comes back and he like lays his head down. And he's like, oh, I'm a good dog, right? You're a little liar, right? But, uh, but that is what I want to look into. How do we wait well when it is not a given that we typically wait well? More than that, how does ha- Advent season and this time of remembrance about the gospel and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, how does that come in and play when you and I are waiting for God to come and to break into our 2020 and to bring relief in the middle of all the tension? to bring a wandering child home from where they're wandering from, to reconcile a broken marriage when you've been longing for him to come and to bring that miraculous work to you or to your spouse and to reunite what may have been broken and hopelessly broken in your past before. How do we wait well while we are longing for God to do the things that he's told us he can do? That's what Joseph's story is going to help us with today. So again, Matthew 1, 18 is where we're going to pick it up. Again, a very familiar story. We, we read this all the time at Christmas season. You heard it just read a little bit ago, but it picks up like this. And it says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child with the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about this relationship right here for just a bit. But verse 18 says that they were pledged to be married. Other versions are going to say that they were betrothed, uh, engaged, or something like that. But essentially what's taking place is a Jewish custom called Kiddushin, which, um, which is this custom where a young man and a young woman would be legally married. However, they're going to wait for about a year uh, before they live together, before they consummate the marriage. And the reason they wait for an entire year is to evaluate the context and the integrity of this relationship to make sure that, uh, that they have been faithful to one another, that there's not a baby that's going to come up in nine months or anything like that, essentially. And so that's what's taking place in Kiddushin. Uh, uh, they're legally married. Uh, they're not living together at this point in time. Joseph's just found out his bride-to-be Mary is pregnant. He knows that it's not his, right? That's not a mystery or anything like that. But it says that he's a righteous man right here in the text. And so he wants to honor her and not expose her to public disgrace, which, man, I'm just going to let you know, this is what righteous men do. It does not matter if you've been hurt. It does not matter if you've been stumped. We do not seek vengeance. We do not seek retribution. We don't go after. We don't shame. We lift up. We elevate. We care for. We protect. And Joseph, being a righteous man of God already at that point in time, has been stung by the uh, seeming betrayal of his bride-to-be. And instead of seeking vengeance or anything like that, he's seeking to honor her and to do about this thing quietly as he has the right to do. This is the betrothal period. And so he has the right to leave her quietly. And so that's exactly what's taking place here in this text. And so he continues in verse 20, and uh, he's thinking about a quiet divorce, and it says this. It says, after he considered all of this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of Mary, do not be afraid to take Mary, I'm sorry, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. All this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord has said through his prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so here's the the context for this. His name is going to be Jesus, uh, yet he's going to be called Emmanuel, not as a name, but as a a title, as a a designation for what he's going to do. Kind of like what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 9 when he says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Savior, and all these beautiful names over here. His name is going to be Jesus, but he's going to be known throughout the rest of time as Emmanuel, God with us. 
And so church, what I want you to think about right here, how do you think this story is going to play with this family and with his friends? The, the, keep in mind the, the, the setting of this scene, the, the entire culture where it is tradition to sit there and to evaluate and to put under the microscope this relationship to, main sh- to make sure there is integrity and there is faithfulness that's taken place. Keep in mind, honor and shame culture. This is not like America today. Honor and shame culture where your integrity, where your reputation, everything is on the line. That matters for everything. That is the social currency of the day is a strong reputation here. This is a culture that gossips left and right. They didn't have social media to do it, and so they just gossiped and they slandered left and right. Praise God that's done with today, right? I'm just kidding. But like, praise, like this is what's taking place. It is a heavy honor-shame culture. Gossip and slander left. Like, how do you think people are going to respond to, yeah, no, 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 I swear, she's been faithful, we're good, we didn't, uh, there was nothing, nothing shady happening ahead of time, she's actually a virgin, and good news, it's the Holy Spirit's baby. Right, like having like teenagers been using that story forever and it's never been believed. I mean, that, that's what's taking place right here. I mean, can you imagine dealing with that story and this burden and this news in the first year of your marriage? I mean, the, the most difficult thing we dealt with in our first year of marriage was the fact that I snored and the fact that I dealt with night terrors. I didn't know this, right? Sleeping as a, as a single person, I had no idea, but I'd like freak out in the middle of the night on different times and it was a little terrifying and stuff. I'd wind up in the other side of the room and wake up and I'm like, I don't know how I got here or anything like that. But like, like that was the weirdest thing that we dealt with. And like, it's nothing compared to what Joseph and Mary are dealing with here in the first year of your marriage. I don't know if you're ever, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Holmes Rahe scale at all or not, but um, this is a way of predicting a mental health breakdown, and it's according to various life stressors. And so this is a test you take, it's an assessment, and they'll gauge how many different life stressors you've been dealing with in the past year of your life, and they'll assign different points to those different life stressors. And what they'll say is if you've acquired somewhere between 150 to 300 points of life stressors in the past year, then you've got about a 50% probability of having a mental illness or mental breakdown of some sort. If you've got over 300 points in the past year, then you've got about an 80% probability of having some sort of a mental breakdown or anything like that. Uh, so I think this is probably going to be blown up in 2020. There's going to have to be a new scale in place or anything like that with different stressors that have come in. But one therapist, Christian therapist, comes in and he says this. He says, it's not inconceivable to think that what Joseph and Mary are experiencing right here is somewhere around 435 points of life stressors going on in their marriage. Point of the matter is like there is absolutely nothing convenient. There's absolutely nothing easy about the circumstances of Jesus' birth right here. But I want you to see how Joseph responds. It says that in verse 24, it says that when Joseph woke up, it says that he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and he took Mary home as his wife. In other words, church, like he's not dragging his feet and delaying obedience. Like he is embracing the inconvenience of what God has commanded him to do and called him to do right here, and he immediately obeys. Like church, like that's what Joseph's story is going to be teaching us in this Advent season. It is the immediacy of obedience and how you and I can embrace the inconvenience of the difficulty around us today. He's not dragging his feet. Procrastination is not in his vocabulary when it comes to the voice of God once he understands what's taking place over here. He, he's not, like, there's an immediacy to his obedience, which begs the question for you and I, like, what is it that God may be calling you and me to be doing today at this point in time in 2020 that is leading us to drag our feet? Is there an immediacy to the calling of God upon your life? You know what he's called you to do in your marriage or with your children or with that tough work relationship uh, in the office or whatever it may be, with your finances, 
right? Is there an immediacy to the things that he is calling you to do? Verse 25, it says that he had no union with her and she gave birth, uh, until she gave birth to a son. In other words, like he waited to consummate the marriage, not only during the engagement and the betrothal period, but he waited for probably six months to a year until after she gave birth to Jesus. Church, like there's nothing convenient about what God is calling him to do. There's nothing convenient about this announcement for Joseph. Like there's nothing convenient trying to tell your friends and your family and the gossipy neighbors that she's still been faithful even though she's, she's, she's pregnant and like that whole story makes sense, doesn't make any sense. Like there's nothing convenient about this story. And yet the beauty of this whole thing is that there's an immediacy to his obedience as he embraces the inconvenience of what God has called him to do. I mean, church, like, you got to understand, like, even heroes of the faith, like Moses, got a word from the Lord in a burning bush, and he stutters in, this, in his response. Like, you remember this, like, a bush is burning, and it's not being consumed, and he knows it's the voice of God. Unbelievably miraculous story taking place right here. And Moses is looking at the scene, kind of going, ah, yeah, I don't think I'm your man, God. I, I don't, I, you want me to go and to deliver the Israelites from the bondage of slavery. I'm not that, don't, 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 don't you know I stutter? I, I can't even put two sentences together. That's not who I am. Heroes of the faith stutter and they wait and they, and, and they belabor the point and they procrastinate and it's just not how it is with Joseph. And so it begs the church question, church, like, what is it that he is calling you to do in this season of life that has you dragging your feet? I mean, that's the question of this text. Like, will you stay faithful in a year like 2020 or not? Like, will, will your obedience be immediate or will the excuses of an insane year justify your procrastination? And I think we get it, like, but like, his story right here, the, the Advent story as told in Joseph's story, it's showing us from the very beginning that, that, that following Jesus won't always be convenient. In other words, like the prosperity gospel doesn't get it all right. It's not all bells and whistles and blessings all the time. He's showing us here at the very beginning that following Jesus, Jesus isn't always convenient. Church, I think we know this, like serving Jesus isn't always convenient. When you give your life for the glory of God and for the good of another person, it won't always come on your own terms. It, always, it won't always be the things that are easy for you to do or necessarily according to your strengths all the time. It's not always gonna be convenient when he calls you to engage in the number of things that he's called us to engage in. Remember, I was talking with a buddy of mine named Wayne who happens to lead our calling, one of the largest, the largest homeless outreach here in Dallas. But I was talking with him a number of years ago about the Christmas season, and he says, I love the Christmas season. Everybody wants to volunteer at this time. He goes, however, I do get a bunch of weird requests. And he was telling me about this one story about a guy who calls in and he says, hey, Wayne, here's the thing. I'm looking for a way that me and my family can serve, but I need it to be on a Tuesday night after 8 p.m. It needs to be kid-friendly, preferably something around feeding meals. Or I don't really want to engage or talk with people or anything like that. And, um, and, uh, and, and it needs to be north of 635. I can't really go downtown or, or anything like that. He's like, you got anything for me? And Wayne's kind of going, uh, so I, I, we're not like an, on, no, I can't do that. We, we, we don't have that available or anything. And he goes, man, you really need to be thinking about diversifying some of your service opportunities a little bit more. <laughs> and Wayne looks at me and he's like, bro, you wouldn't believe the number of comments and questions and, and, and things like this that pop up every single year. I'm willing to serve as long as it's on my own time frame, as long as it's what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. 
Church, we understand that like, serving is not always convenient. Remember a pastor talking about having uh, the opportunity to sit next to Mike Huckabee on, on an airplane, and regardless of where you are politically or anything like that, he sits next to him and comes to find out Huckabee's a God-fearing man, very involved in his church. His pastor's talking to him, and Huckabee goes, he goes, man, I love serving my church. He goes, I'm really active there. He goes, I love serving in the kids' ministry, and I love driving the golf cart around, helping people get from the really, I guess it's an enormous parking lot, but get really, really far away to the front door. Church, you think Mike Huckabee has, has, has other things he could be doing on a Sunday morning or even more high-profile things that Mike Huckabee could be doing rather than, you know, passing out some goldfish and, and, and doing some kids' ministry and driving a golf cart around on a Sunday morning? He understands the beauty of what he's called to do right there. There's nothing convenient about what he's called us to do. He's coming and saying, I'm here to serve for the glory of God and for the good of other people around me. Church, our gathering Doing this thing we often call church, which isn't only the church, we've talked about that, but like our gathering, our physical gathering, it's, it's not always going to be convenient. Or coming and be doing life with people that don't look like you always, think like you always, value the same things that you value, have the same personalities as you, vote the same way that you do, it's not always going to be convenient. And I'll just tell you right now, I think this is one of the things that is going to come out as a result of 2020. This is one of the things that's being tested right now. It's how committed you and I are actually to one another. What the church really looks like as a result of difficulty and as a result of inconvenience coming in and trying to break the whole thing apart. This is going to be fascinating to see where we are next summer and where we are next Christmas, right? When things settle out a little bit more to see how much of a church are we, are we really the church? Or is it a matter of convenience? And I recognize this is not a shaming thing right here at all because there's a lot of things that legitimately are keeping us away right now. And that will fizzle out in a little, at some point in time. But the question is, how committed are we going to be in the long term? Are we going to come together? Because the reality is this gathering that we do, life on life with other people, coming together at the same point in time, at the same day of the week, day, week after week after week, life groups coming together, doing community, it's not always going to be convenient. People aren't convenient. Community isn't always convenient. You're in a life group, right? And some want to go on Zoom and some want to be in person, some need mass. Some people think it's all a farce or it doesn't matter. We have these differences coming together. It's not always going to be convenient. Church, like marriage is not always going to be convenient, right? Loving another person who's not you, it's not always natural or convenient. It requires work, like giving yourself for the good of another person, putting yourself under them, loving your wife, loving your bride as Christ loved the church as he talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5. It may not always be on your own terms and as, you're, as you want, want it to be. Giving yourself requires more. It's not always convenient. Forgiveness is not always convenient. Forgiveness is a painful process that says, you know what, I'm going to relinquish my right to get vengeance upon you or to give you the thing that I think that you deserve because that's what you did to me. That's what forgiveness is. I'm letting go of my right. I'm laying down myself, and I'm choosing to take the pain instead. Church, forgiveness is never convenient. And what God may be calling some of you, some of you who are online right now today, is to enter into forgiveness in a way that you've never entered into before for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your family or friendship or whatever it may be, but what you have to understand is that it's not always convenient. Mission is not convenient. When he calls us to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, like it's not a mission of convenience. I remember a few years back we were having, we had about 30 
different time to revive missionaries and evangelists we were commissioning and we were sending out that one Sunday. And uh, they stood up here and we all prayed over them and stuff like that. And, and I loved that whole time because what we were seeing was about 30 different people who decided that they were going to leave their jobs. They were going to leave what they were doing and they were going to raise their own support. They were going to be homeless and sell their things and travel around the country in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who hadn't heard and to help motivate and mobilize the church to go and do the exact same thing. And we're hearing these stories of people saying, yeah, I left this job and I left this and my wife and I, we packed up and we went and did this and, and things like that. Point of the matter, churches, is not convenient. What he's called us to is just not that. But the point of the matter is, church, we don't go and do those things because it's convenient. We go and we do those things because he's absolutely worthy of it all. We do it because it's worth it. Church, like, you gotta understand, like, that is this Christmas story right here. Everything changes in verse 24 when he realizes the worth of what's taking place inside of Mary's womb. Everything changes. Verse 19, he's considering divorce. Verse 24, it's a completely different story. It, it all changes after he learns that this is the promised Messiah in Mary's womb. After he's told that, that, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he's called Emmanuel, God with us, and that he's going to save the people from their sins. Like everything changes after Joseph's called Joseph, son of David, right, which he knows. I am the son of David. I'm in the lineage of King David. I know that, but it's just not a title that's normally talked about in everyday vernacular. But the angel comes in and says, Joseph, son of David, which is a very weird thing to say, but it's going to bring to remembrance all these things in his mind where he remembers, hey, I remember. The Lord promised, the, the, the Lord promised that the promised Messiah was going to come from the lineage of David. I happen to be from the lineage of David. My wife is pregnant. It's not my baby. I'm hurrying right now that it's, actually, that it's actually conceived by the Holy Spirit. Could this be the promised son of God? Church, everything changes when he understands the Savior's worth, when he understands what's the worthiness of what's taking place inside of Mary's womb. I mean, church, like, I, he's just found out like he's about to become the earthly father to the divine king of all kings. Can you imagine receiving such news? Like, I'm going to be the father to the son of God. The one who was there in the very beginning and spoke the universe into being. The one who numbered the hairs upon my head had a little easier with me. But like the one who could do that, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. Like I'm going to be his father. I'm going to raise this child. I'm going to help him learn different things. Like how in the world is that going to take place? I love, the, I love how there's a movie version of the nativity story that I think illustrates this scene really perfectly. But there's a scene in this movie, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but Mary and Joseph, they're trekking along to Bethlehem. And uh, Mary's very, very pregnant at this point. She's on the back of a donkey and they're coming along. And all of a sudden she stops, she goes, Joseph, Joseph, the baby's kicking inside of my womb. And so they stop and it's just real quiet and everything. And, and, and they come and they put their hand on, on Mary's womb and they're just kind of sitting there in wonder thinking, hey, this is the God of the universe that is in your womb right now. And so it's real quiet and they're just kind of just wondering in amazement at that time. And Mary looks at Joseph and, and goes, hey, Joseph, um, you never really told me about that dream, which we're talking about right here in Matthew 1, that dream of the angel. You never really told me about that one. And Joseph kind of kicks and hems and haws a little bit, and, and he doesn't really want to talk about it, typical husband, I guess, but he's kind of going, I, I don't know. And she goes, Joseph, are you, are you afraid? Are you afraid of what's taking place? And he goes, yeah, I'm very afraid. Are you? She's like, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. And they just sit there, and they just kind of stare at each other real slow and in amazement. And finally, I love what Mary says. Mary looks at him and she says, she says, Joseph, do you ever wonder when we're gonna know that he's more than just a child? 
Do you ever wonder, like, when we're going to realize, when everybody else is going to realize this is the Son of God? Do you think it's going to be something that we see in his eyes? Do, we, do, do you think it's going to be something that we see him do? And Joseph just looks at her, and again, he's just kind of like, he's just, he's just, he feels helpless. And he goes, I have no idea what, what that's going to look like. He goes, I'm wondering if I'm ever going to be able to teach my son anything. But you're like, that is the weight and the beauty of what's happening here in this Advent story. Like, like all in a moment, like Joseph is realizing, this is Emmanuel, God with us. This isn't just another child. This is God coming in the flesh, the one who made everything, the one who was eternal and had no beginning. That God is coming to us, and he's taking on flesh in the form of a human baby through my virgin wife. Like the, the, the God who in the Old Testament, who we, we couldn't even say his name because the, to say the name Yahweh was so holy, you couldn't even say the name. The, the God who told Moses that he couldn't even look at his glory because if he saw his glory, he wouldn't be able to live after that. Like that God is now in my wife's womb. That God is gonna be now my son, God in the flesh, and I'm gonna hold him in my arms. I'm gonna raise him and I'm gonna teach him different things. Church, like that's what's going on in this story. He's realizing this baby is not just human. He is the divine son of God. Yeah, he's my kid, but he's not really my kid. He's 100% God and 100% man, like completely unlike any other human being on the planet. In other words, it's not like you and me who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, yet we're fully human. He is fully God and fully human at the exact same time. In other words, there's never a time when he ever entertained sin and gave in. He doesn't know the tarnishment that comes from a heart and a mind that is corrupted by sin. He doesn't know what it is to be confused by the voice of the Holy Spirit or by the voice of the Father. He doesn't know any of these things. Like he is fully God and fully man all the time. And what I'm saying right here is the immediacy of his obedience and his ability to embrace the inconvenience of this day, it is birthed in the wonder of this news. And church, the saying can be true for you and me today, that we would approach this Advent season here and that we wouldn't just dismiss it as another holiday. That we wouldn't move so quickly to the Christmas lights and to the presents and to the elves and to Santa Claus that we would sit and savor the reality of what we were remembering this day, this time in history, when the God of the universe saw fit to come to us. And then it would just, that's it, that it would just sit there. And that you just wonder in amazement, God, why would you do that? It's unlike any other religion in the world. It's unlike any other thing that we've ever seen that God would love his creation who wandered away from him, who wanted nothing to do with him, who rebelled against his ways and God would continue to be fixated so much in his love towards humanity that he would send his own son, fully God, fully man, in this wondrous mystery of the Trinity. And he would send himself to come and to be born of a virgin, to live among us, that we may be redeemed and have life with him now and for all of eternity. There is wonder in the Advent story and the opportunity for you and the opportunity for me is that we would not skip too quickly to the presents and the festivities and the holidays and that we would sit in the amazement of the fact that God came to be with us. I love the way J.R. Packer talks about this. He says, the incarnation is the most staggering part of our faith. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. 
The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless, kind baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And then he goes on and he makes a fascinating point, but he says this. He says, many people, can't, many people say today, I can't believe in miracles. I can't believe that Jesus walked on water. I can't believe that he raised the dead. I can't believe that he makes the blind see or the deaf able to hear or that he's able to feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish. Many people say, I can't believe in miracles because it seems so impossible for miracles to take place. However, Packett argues, he says it is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief about the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. Once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, all these other difficulties dissolve. I'm going to say that again because I want us to understand this. He says, he says it is from misbelief or at least an inadequate belief about the incarnation of Jesus, that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring up. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, all these other difficulties dissolve. In other words, church, like if there really is a God who took on flesh and became human, why in the world would it be so hard for him to do the miraculous today? Why in the world would you think it impossible for him to come in and to bring hope and healing in the impossible prayers that you're praying to him today? Why in the world would we think that it is impossible for him to raise the dead or to conquer sin and death three days later walking out of a tomb? Why would we think it's impossible for him to satisfy you today in the deepest recesses of your soul in ways that you don't think he can ever satisfy you? Why in the world do you think it would be so difficult to believe that he can come in and fulfill all the promises that he's made for you today? Why would it be impossible to do the things that you are begging him to do? And so church, like what we're seeing right here is there's, there's hope in his divinity. There just is, there's hope in the divinity of Jesus Christ, God coming and taking on flesh. Because it means that if God came and he took on flesh, then what it means is this world is not all that there is. If the Advent story is true, and that Mary, a virgin, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and God took on flesh, it means that the 2020 isn't the end, and that God is in the business of coming to us in our brokenness in order to redeem broken things. This is, his, this is his movement. There's hope in his divinity because it means that, that God wasn't satisfied being unknowable, being, being transcendent and distant, that God had a fixated love upon humanity that compelled him to come to you and me. In the middle of our wandering, when our backs were turned to him, it compelled the God of creation to come to us. Church, there is hope in his divinity, in the divinity of this Advent story, recognizing that the divine came to you and to me because it means that he cares. And it means that we can be confident of a day still future when Christ is going to return once again and he's going to make all things brand new. And so church, there's hope in this divinity and there's hope in this Advent story. But on the other hand, like, there's also comfort in his humanity. And so there's hope in his divinity because we see his power. And there is comfort in his humanity because we see his compassion, knowing that God is a God who chose to come and to walk the road that we are walking today. 
That's what we're talking about. It's Matthew 11, 28. Jesus is going to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you comfort and rest. And what this means is when we take him up on that offer and we come to Jesus, we can do so confident that, uh, that he's going to come and bring comfort because he's a God who came and chose to walk this road uh, that we are walking today as well. A little while ago, I heard Tim Keller talking about this in regards to his first bout with cancer. And he says this, he says, I finally appreciated the comfort of Christ's humanity when I had my first bout with cancer. People everywhere tried to express their sympathy, but I found that it wasn't really able to help. It was only when I found people who had experienced the same thing and walked through a similar type of pain that I was finally able to pour out my heart and receive comfort and healing from them. Similarly, on the backside of my treatments, I found that I was able to be a more compassionate pastor and that people were more open and more willing to talk to me because of my experience. But here it is, he says. When I look back on all of my experiences, I found that it was the humanity of Jesus Christ and the realization that he had endured pain before. That's what gave me the comfort and the confidence I needed in order to bring all of my burdens to him so that I could finally find rest. That's what Hebrews is talking about when he says, we got the better high priest, we got the better God, we got the better man, we got the better everything. He says, Jesus was made just like us, fully human in every single way. And because he himself suffered and he was tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. But church, that's who God is, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh nearly 2,000 years ago, meaning he knows the tension of waiting he knows the tension of pain. He knows the reality of pain, having endured it upon the cross. He knows the pain of waiting, having labored through it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like he knows the, he knows the difficulty of physical pain, having endured it for hours, hanging upon the cross, that our sins may be washed completely clean, that we could have life with him now and for all of eternity. Like he knows what it's like to be tempted tired and hungry because he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting no food being tempted by the enemy and still relying upon the vibrant word of God for life every single day he knows what it's like to lose someone he loved because we read about it John chapter 11 with Lazarus his friend Lazarus passes away and he sees his sisters mourning and the fact that his sisters are mourning over Lazarus's death compels him to come and to weep as well like this is our God church He's not distant and unmovable. He is present and he is with us and he sees tears and he sees pain and he sees difficult and he enters into that difficulty with compassion and with empathy and it moves him to his core. He is a God who knows. He knows what it's like to have a wandering prodigal child, prodigal son or daughter because the entire parable about that is about his relationship with us, his children who have wandered away and disregarded the gifts that he's given to us. He knows what it's like to be the rejected marriage partner because the church is described as the bride of Christ and we've wandered from his holy ways. He knows what it's like to be single long after the rest of his friends were married. He knows what it's like to be despised by his own and not welcome in his own hometown, Matthew 23. He knows what it's like to feel anger when he sees the sin and the rebellion, the rejection, all the depravity in the world around him. And when it's come and it's corrupted the temple, he knows that anger. He knows what it's like to be in such physical pain that you don't want to go on anymore and you say, Father, if there's any other way, let it come and be yet not my will, but your will be done. Church, he knows. The beauty of the Advent story is that 
He's not an unknowing, uncaring, uncompassionate God. He's a God who knows the human predicament. Because he came and he took on flesh, and he was born of a virgin, and he walked this path that you and I are on today. And church, I gotta believe that the comfort and the hope of the news that Joseph received that day helped him embrace the inconvenience so that he could stay faithful day after day after day. Church, I don't know what your traditions are every Christmas, but my hope and prayer is that there may be a new one in your family or in your single unit or whatever it may be. The day after Thanksgiving, our family will always put up our Christmas tree. We'll decorate a little bit of the inside. Yesterday, Saturday, did the lights on the outside. At some point, we'll drive around. We'll see the Christmas lights. We'll do the hot chocolate. We'll go to Christmas Eve service. We'll tell stories. My hope and prayer is that this would not be a Christmas season where we quickly move past the most central part of this whole story to get to the things that are frivolous. That we would sit in the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The fact that God looked at humanity, you and me, in our wandering and in our brokenness and felt compassion. Felt a fury for his glory around the earth that compelled him to come and to be born of a virgin and to grow up as a child submitting to the objects of his own creation that would ultimately lead him to a cross to suffer, to bleed, and to die that you and I could be reconciled to him and have life now and for all of eternity. That is the beauty of the Advent Christmas story. And my hope is that there would be a tradition in your home as you talk about it maybe with yourself, your life group, a family member, a spouse, maybe your children, as you're passing on the faith from one generation to the next, that you would come and you would tell this story of a God who wasn't content sitting out there, that he would come and be born of a virgin to be with us here. And that you would have these questions and you would talk about it and you would talk about the hope that you're feeling today because of his divinity and the comfort that you can feel and you can experience today because of his very real humanity. And my hope is that as you and I process this story and we process those questions, that it would help you embrace whatever inconvenience that you're going through today, knowing that he is absolutely worth your obedience in the end. Father, we love you, God. Lord, we worship you, we praise you, we say thank you to you today. And we honestly, we just wanna sit here and wonder and in all, that you would see fit to come to us. You took the initiative, God. You took the first step. You were the offended one. You were the one who was holy and righteous in all of your ways. And you came to us. Father, we praise you, Lord. You're more than worthy of it all. Whatever the obedient thing is that you're calling us to today, the entirety of our lives, God, you are worthy of it all, Father. I pray for the person that came in today and they're longing for hope. God, I pray that you would fill them with hope today as they fixate upon the divine becoming human, as they see your power, your ability present and with us today. Father, would you fill someone in a very tangible and real way with the hope of glory, the hope of power still to come. Father, I pray for the person that came in longing for comfort, worn out by the tensions of 2020, the difficulties, the pain. 
Just heard news a little bit ago of a loved one here in the church who lost an uncle today. I pray that you would meet her in her pain. That you would give her comfort of one who's also experienced loss yourself. Would you comfort the family, the married, the married couple that's struggling today to stay married? Would you comfort them? Would you give them hope in your power that you can come in and do a brand new thing in their marriage? Would you be present with us, Lord Jesus? Flood us with hope, flood us with comfort today. All for your praise, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.